Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Hello, everybody. This is Kyle Clarich coming to you on our podcast, Interviews with the Expert from Rochester, Minnesota Department of Cardiology. And it's great to have you listening with us today. Our expert is Dr. Jeremy Thaden, Associate Professor of Medicine, who is uh, one of our key people in our interventional practice and has really been instrumental to all of us getting better at using echo guidance for different procedures. And today we're going to focus on the echo guidance for the mitral clip. Jeremy, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Clarence. A pleasure to be here. Great to have you. We'll just jump right into it. What are the key parameters for the selection of a patient prior to a mitral clip? So one of my kind of passions in, in ECHO, and in, in particularly in structural heart, is to, is to help sort of basically to use patient-specific anatomy to help guide therapies. And so what's interesting, what I, what I see sort of happening over the years and in the future here is I suspect we're going to have multiple devices available in, in the relatively near future, I suspect, for treatment of various you know, valve pathologies, in this case, the mitral valve. I think what's going to be key for us is to sort of understand which patients are going to best, you know, which patients and which pathology will best respond to which therapy. And so one of the things my research has focused on is defining what is optimal anatomy, what is the optimal anatomy that's going to give us a good result for edge-to-edge repair? What's the ideal patient for edge-to-edge repair? But if we think broadly, the key components are, you know, we have to precisely define the mechanism, the location, and the severity of MR. If we think about mechanism, the mechanism will certainly affect where we put the clip. So for patients with functional mitral regurgitation versus a patient with a flail, with a flail leaflet, we're going to very precisely place that clip right where the flail is. If we don't hit the flail scallop, uh, we're likely not going to have a good result. And of course, we, we have to define the severity to make sure the patient is an appropriate candidate. Beyond that, I think some of the things, some of the key measures that I think of are, you know, we think about posterior leaflet length as an important one, because uh, the devices available now, uh, you basically have to have a certain uh, length of leaflet within the device in order to, to for it to safely you know, not basically stay, safely stay in the device and not dislodge or have single leaflet detachment. And so we frequently will measure the what we call the mobile uh, leaflet length, and typically the posterior leaflet's shorter. Uh, and so typically we like that to be at least 10 millimeters for most devices, sometimes a little shorter if it's a shorter device. Along with that, I think of um, annular calcification and leaflet calcification. So we've shown that if there's annular calcification that extends into the leaflet in particular, that you run the higher risk of uh, elevated mean gradients after the procedure. And I think that's probably related to leaflet stiffness and mobility. And then we think about mean gradient. So mean gradient, ideally, we want to be you know, three or preferably less. Because remember, as we bring those two leaflets together, we're going to naturally reduce the orifice area, mitral valve orifice area and potentially cause mitral stenosis. And then there's data uh, from our from our lab showing the importance of mitral valve area itself. And so typically the threshold we use is about four 
uh, four centimeters squared. So we want a baseline mitral valve area of at least four centimeters squared. So, so if we think about that, I mean, the key measures are mechanism location severity, which we would typically do with any study. We want mean gradient and mitral valve area because of the risk of iatrogenic mitral stenosis. Uh, we want a posterior leaflet length to make sure the clip doesn't dislodge. And then we want to make sure there's not excessive calcification, particularly at the grasping site, but then also even away from the grasping site, it can be associated with high gradients. So those are the typical things I look for. Quick question for you about the leaflet length. Do we worry about the leaflet, the anterior leaflet length? Usually um, the anterior leaflet is long enough that it's not an issue. I mean, technically you would. I mean, if, if, the, if you had an usually short anterior leaflet, but usually it's just long enough that we, it's, it's not an issue. When you talk about the mitral annular area, how are you obtaining that? What's the best way for, a, for the echocardiographer to obtain the mitral annular area that you said needs to be more than four, equal to or greater than four centimeters squared? Mitro, so the mitral valve area is, is an interesting measurement. So in non-rheumatic valve, the trick is that the leaflet tips don't often align in a single imaging plane. Um, so typically what we'll do, it's done by 3D, and then we, uh, we get a good 3D volume. We open the multi-planar uh, uh, reformatting package, so the quantitative package, and then we pause it at maximum leaflet opening. So again, for a patient in sinus rhythm, that's typically early diastole, when that E-wave is going through, pushing open the leaflets. And then we align as best we can with the leaflet tips. But the trick, the trick is that the leaflets are always shorter at the commissure in a non-rheumatic valve. So what will happen is you'll align with the leaflet tips in the commissures, but the leaflet, you'll be a little bit atrial of the leaflet tips at A2P2 almost in, invariably. And so what we typically do is we go, we drag it uh, as far as we can and as long as there's contiguous leaflet around, so uh, around, the, around the perimeter. And that's how we did it in our study. And that seems to correlate with iatrogenic mitrostenosis after the procedure, but it's all done by 3D. It's really the most accurate way to do it. Oh, are you more worried about mitral stenosis post-procedure in a patient with flail versus functional or is there a difference between those two? That's a great question. Or do we know? <laughs> I don't know if we know. I mean, there's mixed data out there on that and a lot of speculation, and I'm not sure that we understand, but I, th I think that you can find data to support it being detrimental in all patients. Um, you can find it, you, you can actually find data supporting it not detrimental in all patients. But I would say our experience is that when we leave patients with um, high gradients post-procedure, the outcomes are not as good. Um, and and there's, there's likely an interaction with residual mitrogurgitation as well. And there's an interplay there because if you have a patient with a small valve area to begin with, you, we're often left with a decision. Do we, you know, do we reduce the MR more or do we leave them, you know, or do we cause some iatrogenic mitrostenosis? And that's a decision you have to make. Um, clinically, we found in, in our data that if, if we leave a high gradient, the patients t tend not to do as well. But the other, I think the other key point about that is that 
these are the patients that we probably want to select out and think about other therapies, right? So maybe these are the patients where a different device, a different therapy may be a better solution. So we're not leaving them with high gradients afterwards, you know, so we can reliably get rid of the MR, not leave them with a high gradient. And that's really why these parameters are so important, because we want to sort of integrate these findings and then get the best device for each patient and really individualize it. And I think that that does lead nicely into my next question, which is what do you consider to be the keys for success in a procedural um, like the mitral clip and when we're guiding it? And, and most of the time we're there real time at the time that the device is being being delivered. Interventional echo is is interesting. I mean, it, it can be fun uh, kind of being part of these procedures because it's a very it's often a very active and dynamic procedure. But I mean, I think some of the keys are being efficient, you know, being efficient with your imaging, uh, being able to integrate multiple findings. So especially for mitral regurgitation, where there you're integrating all these different findings, you have to you have to sort of be able to synthesize the information in an efficient way, and then honestly, have honest and open communication with the team, right? I mean, you have to be willing to give bad news when the news isn't the best. <laughs> it's easy to give good news, but but I think it what's I, what I think is important is to is to be honest and then you know, have a open discussion about the best way to proceed. Um, and so I think if you have a good relationship with with the team, um, that's huge uh, because then you know you can you can sort of uh, speak honestly and and have a, a conversation about what's going to be the best uh, option for the patient. so so I, I think those are to me, you know being efficient, uh, having experience, uh, having a good relationship with your team and own, uh, open and honest communication are some of the some of the keys to really doing a good procedure and 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 having the best results for the patients. And I, I know that you alluded to the gradient being too high, and that's probably where you're what you're talking about when you have to deliver the bad news. Now we have too high of a gradient. Do we retract one of those clips, or what? Do, what do we do? Or or we still have FR. Are there hard and fast rules about how much gradient you leave behind? I know you kind of said, well, it's a clinical judgment, but are there some guardrails that we could leave our audience with about the gradient that you'd be comfortable with, the gradient that might be, oh, well, this is intermediate, it's not perfect, but we'll stick with it and a gradient that would just be plain too high? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's patient-specific. I would say generally we like to keep our resting uh, gradients uh, less than five, but that's sort of an ideal scenario. So I think, you know, we look at the, the residual MR, the transvalvular gradient, and we often look at left atrial pressure too, uh, to get a sense of how the patient's going to, how the patient's going to feel after the procedure. Somewhat younger patients, or maybe, or maybe more accurately, more active patients where they may have a more dynamic heart rate range. I think we're a little more reluctant to leave those patients with high gradients. Whereas in uh, much a uh, patient that we we know is going to be less active and maybe won't have such a dynamic heart rate range for whatever reason. Uh, maybe you're comfortable leaving a little bit higher mean gradient as long as you're improving the MR. 
Uh, and so I, I think it's, it is patient specific. We still like to leave the gradient less than five. Um, I think there are some exceptions, but typically they're in patients where we get a really good MR reduction. They may, we're expecting not such a dynamic heart rate range post-procedure. And so those patients we think probably will still feel better with the MR reduction despite a little higher gradient. And then you also mentioned about the residual mitral regurgitation. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Um, yeah. You mentioned the gradient at less than five yeah. is ideal. And then you have to think about, is this patient on beta blockers? They're not going to have such a high rate. And we know that mitral stenosis is always better at a lower heart rate with have better filling time. So that, that all makes sense. Um, but what about the MR? I mean, that's also could raise the gradient, right? I mean, if you leave someone with a fair amount of MR, that could be playing into the gradient. But more importantly, you know, I think we're constantly as interventional cardiologists trying to strike that balance between how much MR do we leave and where is that gradient coming from? I think there's probably the the best data as far as outcomes uh, with residual MR. So that's probably the most consistent data is, you know, patients probably do better uh, when we reduce the MR fully. Um, there's conflicting data on the gradient, uh, but there's pretty clear data on the on the MR front. Um, I think that the challenging part of, about the post-procedural assessment is it's still, you know, it's integrative, but it's still, you know, it's subjective, right? So one echocardiographer can look and get a slightly different impression than the other. Um, I think there, there are ways to reduce the variability by looking at things like vena contracta. I think pulmonary veins are really helpful uh, as, as far as a window into the left atrial pressure. And then incorporating left atrial pressure itself. Uh, the, the things that I look at are, I look at um, the width of the jet, you know, there are a number of parameters you can look at, but you look at the width of the jet, I, I should say the vena contracta, you look at pulmonary veins, the number of jets, um, and certainly we look at the 2D correlates, right? So if we see residual flail, uh, then we know that's probably not the best, that probably not the best result, and we're going to probably want to modify uh, in order to totally get rid of the flail. And then the other thing that we incorporate is the pressure. So if we, for instance, if we see Mitral regurgitation, that's maybe a little bit more than we would have wanted, but maybe that's in the setting of the systolic pressure jumping 20 points and the cardiac output improving, then maybe we're a little more comfortable with that because we've already seen a hemodynamic improvement, right? If the left atrial pressure went down, systemic pressure went up, cardiac output went up, these are all sort of as part of the integrative approach. Um, and so that's that's kind of the nice thing about this is there's you know, the amount of data and the collaborative approach, uh, which hopefully leads to the best outcome for the patient. And a reduction in that big V wave. That's right. That's very satisfying, isn't it? To yeah. see that V wave go away. Yeah. So I think what I heard you say, correct me if I'm wrong, is you want to leave the mitral valve gradient after the procedure less than five. That's kind of one of those things above five, you got to look really hard at all the integrated parameters. You're going to use the echo parameters. The um, interventional cath uh, person will look at the LA pressures, the V waves, the cardiac output. And then you would want to um, make sure that the, the post-procedure MR is as minimal as you can get it. But reading between the lines of what you said, we're never really going to, well, I shouldn't say never. You never say never in medicine, but it's rare to completely resolve all the MR. Yeah. I mean, I think that the 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 procedural results have improved over over time. I mean, when you compare a first generation device and early experience to the 
much more high volume now and having access to four different devices, that definitely the, the results have improved. I think that what will improve our outcomes overall over time will be probably having access to other devices, which are maybe best, better for different patient anatomies. And we're starting to see that already, but I think having access to devices where we're outside of clinical trials, where a patient has maybe suboptimal anatomy that we know we might not get the best results or we're less likely to get the best results, we can um, uh, refer those patients for a different device, which, which we can do through a clinical trial now, but we'll, we'll certainly have better access once, they're, once some of these devices are clinically approved. Well, this has been very informative. I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to say to our audience or summarize any of the key points tried to do that moving along, but I think there's a lot of data here, a lot of nuances. You know, it's one of those things where it's evolving too. So, and I appreciate all the research you're doing to help our practice and the rest of the world understand how to screen these patients, ideally. Thank you, Dr. Clarich. I appreciate it. Thank you to the audience as well for listening in on interviews with the experts. And thank you, Dr. Thaden, for your excellent discussion today about how to guide the interventional mitral clip procedure with echocardiography. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.